Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Ways of Working podcast. Today I'm going to be joined by Rory McDonald. Uh, this is a very exciting episode today because uh, we are focusing around martial arts, performance athletes, and I have a big passion for martial arts, having first started younger training in karate and then moving on to um, Muay Thai, and I, I continue to study Muay Thai off and on, and then I, I had the great pleasure of training, uh, although very briefly, with, with Rory, um, learning Jiu-Jitsu and Nogi Jiu-Jitsu as well as MMA. So very excited to have him on today. You know, Rory has been training and coaching in combat sports for over two decades. He wrestled during high school and then university. He won a national championship while in university. And then he went on to start to train in, uh, you know, a greater expanse of martial arts, including Krav Maga, boxing, kickboxing, and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. He then looked to take his career uh, professionally and uh, really dedicate his life to martial arts. And he got his first win in, in pro by training at and, and doing an open tryout at Apex MMA. He then went on to fight for over a decade. He was selected to travel to actually Afghanistan during an actual war zone that was active to participate in the first ever MMA fight overseas, so that's very cool. And he's selected uh, twice to represent Canada at the FILA World Championships. Uh, he has a level two national coaching certification in freestyle and Greco-Roman wrestling, as well as boxing. And he's been awarded his black belt by Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu uh, world champion, Daniel Valverde. So very, very experienced individual we have on today with not only he's been there and, and done that as a high performance athlete, but now he continues to coach those athletes both at a national, international level, fought in some of the biggest leagues, UFC, Bellator, and he's coached national and provincial champions as well within you know the Canadian area. He looks to and continues to provide training to prison guards police and military personnel, as well as he has taken time to go out and coach high school and elementary students. Uh, he's also worked, you know, outside of MMA, working with national championship hockey players, baseball players, and rugby teams. So Rory, very passionate individual about martial arts and a passionate coach and really developing individuals. So without further ado, let's get into it. I'd like to welcome Rory McDonald to the podcast. You know, uh, so again, welcome Rory McDonald. Uh, Rory joins us today uh, to talk about the intersections of martial arts uh, and obviously mixed martial arts across the board. Um, and the focus is how do we, you know, what are the ties between that and business? And so, you know, Rory and I were talking just before we kind of started the show about, you know, I, I see a tremendous amount of, of relevance between it. You see lots of people referencing books such as Sun Tzu and others. Um, and, and, you know, martial arts to me is a very important piece. And so I, I really wanted to have Rory on and was very excited when he joined. Um, but Rory, before we get into the, you know, the, you know, how the two might relate and some of the pieces to it, um, you know, you run a, a highly respected gym, Parabellum in Oakville. And, you know, but let's, let's go back a little bit. And like, how did you get started in martial arts? Like, where did it all begin? Was it wrestling or was it something else? And, and how did it kind of evolve for you um, kind of into where you are at uh, today? Yeah, that's uh, that, that's that's a common question for for I think people that ended up making such a such an unusual life choice. Uh, you know, how did you end up being a, a fighter of, of of all things? And I've had this conversation with the other the other coaches, Lucas and Lennon at the gym, and I and I and I really think at at, at a certain point of a fighter, it's it's something that you are 
maybe more than just something that you that you do. It's it's a it's it's genuinely the people that are, that are good at this sport are I think wired a little bit uh, a little bit differently. And I was always kind of that way. I was not a great athlete growing up, very mediocre at most sports. I was small and I got picked on a lot, but I would always 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 fight back to my own detriment usually. But I would always always fight back. Yeah. And then when I was 14, I ran into wrestling. And all of the my, my aggression and and uh, some of my uh, aggressiveness uh, really really paid off in wrestling, and I was good at it fairly quickly. And that that was from there. It was a very natural progression uh, from wrestling in high school, university, making the transition into boxing and jujitsu, uh, and then into a, into a professional career. But the, the first sport was was wrestling. Uh, but the truth is, again, if I think back, you know, at five years old, I was getting into fist fights. Yeah. Uh, so it's it might be what I am, and not just kind of what I what I do. And did you find like you know because you had that kind of built in, and and it's interesting that because there is this innate, I guess it's the nature versus nurture piece of it too, where there is mm. you know some that there is this different you know wiring or drive that you know gets people to to go down that path. Were there individuals? Um, like your dad or maybe your, your coaches, at, you know, at Guelph or other places that, you know, were, were influences in, you know, propelling you further in that direction? Or, or how did you found that, you know, find that you navigated that? Was it or was it self? Yeah, you know, just given how you were wired? Um, you know, I think I probably would have ended up in some kind of combat sport eventually no matter what i think that that is i think my personality would have would have drawn me to it but i was really fortunate to have some some just some unbelievable role models uh, almost every step of the way my high school my high school wrestling coach uh, produced the most successful wrestling team in in ontario history arguably maybe canadian history but but certainly in ontario um you know i i wrestled at guelph with a four-time olympian doug cox uh, was a was an incredible uh, wrestler yeah. and you mentioned my dad uh, my dad has has always been a mentor to me in in life uh, and he came to martial arts almost simultaneously with me although in a, in a different way but he started training in a more traditional martial art when i was 15 or 16 right around the time that i was really heavily getting into wrestling okay. and so we had um like I said, he's my mentor in life. But when I think about how we approach martial arts, we've kind of we've kind of worked together to to get where where we're at. First student that signed up my at my gym, I'm I'm, I'm extremely proud of him and in, in his martial yeah. arts. And he he still trains with you today, right? Like I, I haven't seen he's him still, in a while. I haven't been unfortunately. Right, he still he still trains twice a day. He's out. Uh, that's you know, we're gonna we're going for um. He wants to go for a for a bike ride uh, today for an hour or so, so we can earn the beer that we get on the patio afterwards. <laughs> so that's. Re reward comes at a, as a, at a cost, right? Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's great. And you know, like, like, you know, martial arts does teach you a lot of things, right? You can see it like with your dad, continuous learning, uh, you know, even into, you know, his later years, but he's still staying very active, which is very inspirational for a lot of people, right? Mm -hmm. You know, like I have some things, you no know, discipline, confidence, humility, you know, there's this reception of failure. I can't tell you the number of times I've been tapped. <laughs> <laughs> and it's just it's just you got to keep going right and so, so it, it, really, know, it really teaches you humility quick but like you know what are some of the most valuable you know things like from a skills or behavior perspective that is uh, has been the most important for you either you know now as a coach or that you've seen mm. as you've evolved as as a fighter and as a as a martial artist or, or modern warrior if you will yeah there's um you know, the answer probably isn't going to be as sexy as you might expect asking, a, you know, a fight coach what the secret is to being a killer. 
but 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 in my mind, and this and this this is this is maybe a, a good rule of thumb for approaching success. But yeah. but discipline and consistency, discipline and consistency matter more than 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 anything else I've really run into as a coach. I've had some of the most talented athletes on earth yeah. that you 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 wouldn't know their name. You wouldn't know their name because they've never done anything. They just, they, they, they aren't disciplined enough. And then I look at a guy like, uh, you know, like Frankie Edgar, uh, former UFC champion, not that he's not an incredibly gifted athlete, but that guy is a gritty, hardworking blue collar fighter that shows up to practice twice a day, every day. And he slowly builds, uh, to a point where, where, where he becomes a world champion. And I think that that's something that, that I've, that I've learned from martial arts. I've learned from wrestling, uh, uh, hard work, consistency uh, uh, will 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 take you further than than talent, than than ambition, than than uh, uh, the, the the clearest dream. Show up every day and do your work, and uh, and you'll get further. Yeah, that's really good advice. And and how do you how do you instill that in the team? Right, obviously you have some very as you said, you know, world class athletes that commit mm. your training you know, high caliber, hyper alpha individuals, both men and women, mm -hmm. had some very successful fighters uh, at the pro level, both men and women. Um, how do you instill that in them? And, you know, because obviously there's a lot coming at you. There's a lot of prep work in, in fight camps. You know, how do you ensure that they stay focused and, and they keep those, you know, simple messages in mind? Because simplicity is difficult to get to, right? Yeah. And this is, you know, uh, uh, I've never actually been asked this, this exact question. You know, Lucas Lynn and I have spent a lot of time building uh, a structure and a framework of how our pro sessions, uh, and actually this, this is true across the, the, the entire gym, the rec classes and the, uh, the pro classes, but with the, the demands that are put on a pro athlete, it's, it's more significant. So we have a really set structure where we've built in rest days, we've built in intense sparring days, and we've built in medium pace technique days so that everybody kind of has an idea every week when the work is, when you're going to pull off, when you can come in and, and get, get some extra help. And then we really make a point of being there mm -hmm. as, as coaches. You know, you're, you're, you are dealing mostly with hyper, uh, hyper alpha, hyper disciplined athletes, male and female, as you, as, as, you, as you said. But if the coaches are there setting the example uh, that we're there all the time, uh, that, that makes it much, much easier to, uh, to have the athletes follow suit. It's one of the things I've really been struggling with, with through the, the, the pandemic, because I feel like I'm not there. I feel like I'm not there and not there enough. Uh, and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to, to, to respect the reality of the situation, but also I hate not, I hate not being there. I hate not, I hate not being present, uh, in these guys in, in when these guys are doing any kind of work. Um, so I'm hoping that we can get back to, to, to some normalcy so we can get back to the routine. Yes. Yeah. And do you find that routine helps like that, that guide rails in place? Because, you know, obviously there'd be a lot of volatility otherwise. And do you, do you find that that presence and, and that those guide rails, it, it works night and day, like in it, and are you continuously improving it? Like, are you and Lucas and others, you know, you, you have these guide rails and this framework and you say have evolved it over the last number of years at the gym based on you know, how you're seeing the interactions and what's working and what's not working. You know, how, yeah, there's, there's, um, you know, we, we, we have the benefit and I guess this is also true in a business uh, scenario. It's one of the things I love about uh, uh, free market capitalism, that you are educated constantly about how to make your business better. If you pay attention, if you pay attention. Right? Yes. And in, and in, and in fighting, it's the same thing. If we're paying attention, 
we're being shown all the time where, where we're weak, what's going wrong, uh, you know, consistent problems. And we have conversations a lot about how to iron those out, about how to deal with individual athletes or how to, how to tweak the system to get a, a, a better, a better uh, result. But that, that still exists within a very, very consistent framework. And this is something, you know, without making this conversation political, because we don't need to do, we don't need to do, to do that. Um, but I, but there's um, a conservative political thinker that wrote a couple hundred years ago. His name's Edmund Burke. And he wrote a, a book about the, uh, the French Revolution. And he, he's looked at as a, as a, as a um, like John Stuart Mill is to liberalism, uh, Ed, Edmund Burke is to conservatism. But what I liked about how he ap- approached, he said, if we're gonna, if we're gonna change things, it should be slow and it should be thoughtful and we shouldn't throw things out that work well just because we think we've got a, a better idea. This should be very, very contemplative before we make any changes. And we do have a system in place that produces a, a 80 to 90% win rate in MMA, which most of the time is a 50-50 sport. Um, so I'm, I'm, we're not making massive changes week to week, it's, it, but it is something that we, that we definitely d- discuss. Uh, and and that, that's really great, actually. And, and I'll write down that, like, for tracking the books and stuff for the audience afterwards. But it, it's very pragmatic because we do talk about, you know, in my world, I work in technology and, and, and consulting. And there's always this notion of continuous improvement, big bang or massive change um, usually doesn't go over well. And, mm-hmm. um, but you want to be making those continuous improvements over time. Like fine-tuning, fine yeah. not rebuilding, right? Yeah, it's... Yeah, it's, it's very rare that you'll do, do a full rebuild, and there is a lot of investment and, and risk that goes along with that, right? And one of the other pieces is along this whole notion of um, people would do things for the longest time just because that's the way it was done. Like, oh, if you manage a project or manage a team because the, the dinosaurs did it that way, we should continue to do it that way, whereas the more yeah. way of thinking is around you know, which is similar to the framework that you have is around values and outcomes. And what are we actually driving for? Does it make sense what we're doing? And, you know, using feedback loops and talking with the teams and others to say, does this make sense? What are our metrics? You just mentioned, you know, 80, 90% win rate. Like that's phenomenal. Like the, to get that sort of, you know, to get those numbers is, is fantastic. And that you have measurable results speaks mm. well to, to how you're progressing and how you're doing it. So that, that's very cool. You know, I read, um, I read a couple of really interesting books about human decision-making and, and how we approach our ability to, to measure what we're, what we're looking at. Um, big data is, is becoming more and more important. And one of the things, I read this book called uh, uh, The Undoing Project by uh, Michael Lewis, same guy that wrote uh, Moneyball and uh, The Big Short. He's a great author. Uh, but he wrote, he wrote about uh, two, two Nobel Prize winners, uh, Daniel Kahneman and Eamon Tversky, that, that, that studied human decision-making. And what they said is that humans are very, very bad at recognizing trends. They, we see patterns too much. Not that we don't recognize patterns, but we see them everywhere because it's how our brain is structured. And we are, because of that, we are really prone to, to, to uh, cognitive biases. And, and essentially, it's almost like an optical illusion for your brain, where I can tell you that you're looking at an optical illusion. You know it's an optical illusion, but it still fools your eye. So we're prone to these types of, uh, of cognitive biases. And, and in the book, he uses sports scouts as, as his prime example. He said, these guys are out measuring 
uh, uh, some hard variables, but then some soft variables as well. Like how do you measure a person's personality versus their, uh, uh, you know, their, whatever their, uh, their free throw, uh, uh, percentage. So as soon as I read this book, it made me feel much less secure about my perception of what I was seeing with the team and, and, and in fights. And so I started to pay closer attention to data and numbers and, and have some, like you said, have some matrix that I can follow. So it's not just like I walk into the gym and say, well, I feel like we should make practices harder, right? <laughs> just I feel like being a son of a bitch today. We're going to roll but, a lot more today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I mean, I do do that sometimes, but that's, but, but I want to be making decisions with, with, with uh, touchstones in, in hard data and, and hard reality. Um, and then, and then use my instincts as a way to, 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 to guide the fine tuning as yeah. opposed to recognizing the, the patterns. Yeah. And then that's important, right? And that, because it's, it's one thing to have the data and have the inferences, but that's kind of where it stops. You still need to your, to your point, the wisdom and experience of, of what do I do with that data? How do I bring a perspective that makes sense and then can drive a, a way forward? You know, like with that, it, you know, there's all these intricacies with martial arts, you know, especially with, say, with rolling and jujitsu and, you know, within the, the context of, you know, when a fight's actually happening, you know, talk about those because they're often missed by practitioners, right? And so, you know, why is, why, why is it so important to study the nuances, if you will, and bring such attention to those? It's the, the devil in the details, if you will, and it's a common yeah. analogy, but, you know, in martial arts, there's little things that can be missed. And I know you make a point of it in class to teach this. Um, why is it so important that people focus on those nuances? I think, I think the word nuances is the, is the, the exact right, uh, um, uh, uh term. not to, and not to, not to use uh, crazy analogies all over the place, but I, but I, but I was reading a comparison of the English language and Spanish. Um, and English, because English has over the years kind of beaten up other languages and stole parts and, and, and put together this. We have like 45 to 50,000 words in the English language. And Spanish has something like 20 to 22,000. And this is in no way to suggest that, that English is, is a better language because that, that's a silly way of thinking about it. But what, what the 45,000 uh, words uh, allow us to do is, is to create nuance in our, in, our, in our speech and in our language. And that is one of the reasons English is becoming the lingua franca of, of, the, of the entire world. Yeah. And I think that, that might, might pinpoint why the nuances are so, are so important. If you have a, a cookie cutter uh, uh, approach, if, you, if everything looks like a square, you're, you're as likely to fail as you are to succeed. But the nuances are what allow you to, 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 to choose the right tool uh, at the right time. Studying the nuances, I think, I think is what really gives you a depth of understanding in whatever, whatever the, 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 the field is. And then if you wanted to get a little hippy dippy about it, which I, which I rarely do, but if you fall in love with something to the point that the nuances fascinate you, uh, you know, you want to, you want to, you want to learn all the little weird grip details. Um, you want to, you know, you want to rebuild a classic car with a wrench. You want to go, you want to, you know, you want to take a carburetor apart the old fashioned way. I, you will, you will deeply understand not just your car, but all cars, right? If you fall in love with those types, types of nuances, I think it's, um, you know, and it's, it's a hard thing to balance as a coach when you're, when you're trying to present big ideas and, and those nuances as well. But the people that fall in love with them and pay attention are the ones that I think uh, are more successful. 
And do you find that, you know, like they're, they're the ones taking notes? Like, I know it's, it's a little harder to do that when you're sitting on the mat, but do you find that you see them? Cause like, so I personally, I write in a journal, I take mm. notes, I have Evernote, like I have pages of questions here. So I'm always writing stuff cause my brain is constantly going and I, and I do want to be learning and consuming. Do you find mm -hmm. that, you know, some of the, the more active individuals are like that? They are the, the lifelong learners. They are those that are, you know, watching fight fight uh, tape or fight videos and, and taking notes with you, you know, maybe one-on-one -on -one sessions, things like that. How do you find uh, athletes that are, are growing and, and who has, you know, who has grown the best uh, and what skill sets might they have used? Yeah. You know, I think, um, yeah, there's, that was a big question. There was a lot. Let's start with the notes piece. Do you find people like take notes or, or find ways to, uh, in order to, to better themselves so that they can remember all these pieces because the nuances. Yeah. My, my, my sense is that notes, notes are, are, are something that, that work very well for, for some people. Um, but some people, uh, you know, I've, I've had dyslexic students that, that, that the act of trying to write notes during a jujitsu class would be like trying to juggle while riding a unicycle. Like it's not, it's going to be much, much worse for them to, to do right. that. Yeah. But, but the, the act of study, whatever that looks like for you, and you know, for you, it's right. It's for you. It's writing notes. For me, I, I, I absorb information the best by reading it. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, my, my partner, Lyndon will talk about the fact and he, and he actually gave some of the, uh, the pro shit. And I did, I did too. Cause I, I actually do the same thing, but he said, I know that you guys after practice, you know, you go out, you put on your, uh, your, your music when you're driving home and you, and you kind of, you, you zone out. I do not listen to music when I drive home from practice. Right. I am, I am, I am thinking about what happened in practice deeply for the 20 or 45 minutes that it takes me to, to, to get home. Yeah. And that means from a coaching standpoint, I'm thinking about what I saw with athletes from an athlete standpoint, cause I still train. I might be thinking about something I did well, something I didn't do so well, but it gives me a chance to, to let some of the ideas settle into my mind. And it's, and it is that, it is that study. Yeah. So I think that is, is extremely important and that will look very different from one person to the next. But if you're going home and watching three hours of YouTube videos or you're going home and pouring over notes that you've made, or you're driving for an hour thinking about every single match that you had on the mat. Yes, that is, that is, that is the correct thing to be doing cognitively to have those skills uh, develop in a meaningful way. Okay. Yeah. I, I like that. The, the reflection is big, right? Because it does. It, you can easily jump from, you know, I, I always use the analogy from the movie Up. It's a cartoon mm -hmm. movie where there's this dog. Love that movie. And I love that movie. Squirrel, squirrel, right? And it's yeah. Like, <laughs> and yeah it's, no, you're right. <laughs> yeah. It's funny you mention that. So my, my dad has, his whole life has believed that he, he is uh, ADHD uh, mm -hmm. and he might be, he might be. Yeah. And, I, and I, and I probably have a little, a little bit of that. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I love is when I find something that I fall in love with enough that yeah. that stops happening. And, and that's, and it's, and it's, and it's interesting to see, because if I'm kind of into something, you know, I'll end up be, be kind of reading one thing and kind of watching a YouTube video uh, and, you know, I'll text a, you know, a couple of people and I am, and I am absorbing the information kind of. Yeah. And then yeah. if I find something that, that absorbs me, I will not move for 12 hours. I will, I will, I will be, I will be consumed uh, by by the desire to know, uh, and I love finding those things. That's 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 maybe my my favorite thing in the world.
it's hard to come across those two, right? Like to, to truly get in the zone where, where I call it like where the magic's happening because it, it, it does, it just feels like you're on a whole other level that, you know, everything's flowing, you know, you see things very crystal clear and, and it's just, it is, it's just, everything's flowing well, I guess is the easiest way to put it. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, that is hard to come by, but it, it is, it, it's fantastic when that happens. I do find that with martial arts myself, I, I do like, it is that release and I do find things become much clearer when I, when I do train. And so that's why I still love to do it. Um, you know, not as much as I'd like to, but you know, that, that, that is, yeah. what it is. I mean, life, life, life gets in the way. I've, I don't train as much as I'd like to, and I own a gym, uh, you know, like it, it's just, it's, it, it is what it is. It happens. And, and how's, how do you find that the gyms evolved like over the years with, you know, cause there is different ways to train, you know, obviously COVID has had a tremendous impact and not being able to be there, but have you evolved the, the mechanics of the gym with just the way the world works these days? Um, you know, what maybe, um, you know, and, and the second follow on question to that, you know, is tying it into business professionals. Like you have, individuals who are obviously there for fight team and then there's guys yep. like, who want to come in and train and evolve but um i'm not going to be signing up for fight camp um i'm still going to just come in there to train and, and be fit and and you know grow in that sense versus you know the, the fight team sense yeah that's um so there's two there's two kind of avenues that i could that i could uh, you know answer answer that question one in a, in a very literal sense the the way that we've kind of changed the mechanics of of how we change or sorry, how we train, and then in a broader sense, how the 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 world has kind of shaped the the gym. And I'll, I'll, I'm I'm comfortable answering answering both. Sure, yeah, let's let's do it. You know, Lucas. One of the reasons that that I'm so pleased to be partners with guys like Lucas and Lyndon is that I that they they approach the world of martial arts the same way that I do, which is to study it deeply, to understand it traditionally, and then to make a decision about what works and what doesn't. And, and not to have a whole lot of emotion about what we say this, you know, we're going to do this or this, yeah. but we look at efficacy and it's allowed us to have maybe the most flexible versions of each of our, our martial arts. I, I teach a very progressive, uh, a very fluid style of no gi. We've been, uh, you know, using leg locks for years when that wasn't socially acceptable right. and it's becoming a little bit more so now, but we're way ahead of the eight ball because of that. You know, Lucas with his, uh, with his self-defense and his Krav Maga, has I, I I started out as a as a Krav instructor. Uh, that was one of the first martial arts uh, that I that I trained in and that I taught. And Lucas has really modified it to reflect what I consider to be more realistic approaches uh, towards towards combat. And Lyndon, yeah. Lyndon is probably the most hard nosed traditionalist in terms of do it right, do it the right way. Um, and that it's sometimes that does look, you know, like an old school jab, elbow tucked in step, uh, and he will make you do that 10,000 times, but he will also teach spinning back fists. He'll also teach flying knees because he believes in them and he's seen them work and, and he's used them effectively. And that to me is the, is the, is the, the, the best approach. You, you study the technique deeply and then you modify it as needed because of your depth of understanding. To the second part of that, that question. Again, you know, it's it's difficult not to to, to make things political right now, um, but we we have a lot of police that train at our gym. About I'd say about 15, 20 percent of our members are are police, and I'm really proud of that. I'm really really proud of that fact. 
And I may have a, uh, a, a, a positive bias about police because I deal with so many cops that are taking their, their own money and using it to, to become more efficient as, as a fighter, safer as a fighter. Yeah. And the reason I feel that that's important, if you can fight, I think you're 10 times less likely to pull a gun or a taser. If you can fight, I think you're 10 times less likely to get scared and do something that hurts somebody, not because you're malicious, but because you're frightened and you don't have other, other tools. I think that, that by teaching cops to fight, you make the, 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 the world a, a safer place. And we have, over the years, started to uh, uh, address that you know, by, doing, by doing seminars with, uh, with, with law enforcement, seminars with uh, corrections. We've done seminars for um, uh, uh, nurses in Emerge because they're dealing with they're, they're dealing with the exact same people the cops are, except they don't get to shoot anybody, right? So we, we've really tried to, to, to kind of make, make a difference uh, uh, with, with some of the problems that I see in the world in the very limited way that we can with a martial arts gym. But I, but I think that this is doing some, some good in the world. Um, and I'm proud of that. I am prou- I'm proud of it. Well, and that's amazing. And, and, you know, kudos to you guys for that. And I, and I, and I do like having trained at the gym, I, I've seen all three of you know, the way you guys coach and I, and I do like it because there is different perspectives and, and it does, everything blends well together. There's this, you know, constructive, you know, collaboration and chaos that occurs between you guys. And, um, you know, the fact that I, you know, you're arming also, you know, from a, how to deal with situations perspective to law enforcement and others is big because one of the challenges with working is that if you're not um, provided with the tools and the mechanics and the framework and, you know, yeah. to get the job done, whatever it may be, you know, that's a big problem, you know, in my world as well as working in, you know, tech and consulting is that people talk a lot, but they're not given the capabilities a lot of times by leaders to empower them to, to do what they need to do or to feel comfortable in, in, in the work that they're going to do. And that's a challenge because there are people that do want to bring about positive change at, at work yeah. and they can't do it because they haven't been provided with that. And so being provided with the tools, the mindset and the behaviors in order to facilitate those positive engagements and to um, de-risk and escalate situations in whatever yes. they may be. Man, um, you know, I've, I've watched the, these, these defund police conversations with, with, with growing concern. And I'll, and I'll offer the caveat that I, I don't think it's inappropriate to have a discussion about where money is spent and why. I don't think that's inappropriate at all. I think it is inappropriate to say, cut the money, get rid of them. But I'll tell you one problem that I've always had with, with, with the Ontario, and this is not Ontario police uh, officers. I mean, this is with the, the, the reasoning of the bureaucracy that, behind the police. Yeah, yeah. If you want to learn to speak Spanish as a cop, if you wanted to learn uh, to how to type faster, uh, they, will, they will pay for you. They will subsidize your education because you're, you're going to be a better police officer. They right, will not do right. that for martial arts. Yeah. If you, wanted, if you wanted to, if you, if you want to learn how to do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu as a cop, you yeah. pay out of your own pocket. And that's something, that's something that in my mind, if you're, if you're willing to acknowledge that education is important, if you're willing to acknowledge that we'll make better police officers, if they speak multiple languages, then, then, then to your point, provide them with the right tools, yeah. provide them with the right tools, let them learn how to do this safely and correctly. I think everybody, I think everybody is safer because of it. I do too. And so do you think that there's still this ignorance? Cause obviously like with Thai boxing, there was this long challenge to get it, you know, regulated because of those who are in certain positions that were prohibiting. And it's the same with MMA with, 
you know, prohibiting the ability to have sanctioned events in the province. Do you think that there is still this blatant ignorance that exists with um, individuals for, because they think of, there is brutality and there is brutality. It's, you're, you're not in a knitting class, so somebody yeah. can get hurt. Um, but it's the flip side of that, where it is the teaching people how to deal with situations. There, there's the numerous reasons, confidence, standing up against bullies, teaching people how to behave, how to deal with situations, confidence, dealing with failure. Yeah. There's just it, the, the, the mountain of things that benefit an individual as well as a group from participating in martial arts far outweighs the, oh, the, the potential the, risk, the, the, the risk that the, oh, somebody got punched and they, you know, broke a nose or lost, lost, so, nose, you know, whatever it may be. When we did the, I told you about the, uh, the, uh, the emergency room seminar that we did with, with nurses and, uh, and first line responders, uh, in the emergency room. My, my mom is the CEO of, uh, of the Georgetown, uh, the Georgetown Hospital. Okay. So when, when we were doing this, I reached out to my mom and I said, I'd like to get in touch with your nurses. I'd like to put up, um, you know, some ads just to let people know. And she said, Rory, I will not let you do that. I will not let you do that. She was mad at me. And we actually got into a bit of a bit of an argument about it. She said, Rory, how can I, how can I walk into the hospital advertising, teaching a, a, a nurse to choke somebody unconscious in a self-defense class and then look at a, a, a family with their 90-year-old their grandfather with dementia and tell them, oh, no, we don't mean your, your grandfather. Yeah. Like, really? Because he gets upset sometimes and he can be hard to deal with. And now you're dealing, now you've got trained fighters. And you and I both know that, that if the reason my gym is named Parabellum, because if you're prepared for war, you are less likely to have to fight. Right. And, and you and I both know that if you have experience with violence, if you train, you are less likely to use that as a solution than somebody that doesn't because you understand the consequences. Yeah. But my mom, who loves me and knows that I'm not a thug and has watched me yeah. you know, my entire career and, and understands my, my, my gym, that was her very first response. So I am aware that as, as reasonable as this seems to you and I with experience, yeah. If we present this to the world that we're going to teach cops how to choke people even better, right? There, there, there will be more of a pushback against this, this idea than, than maybe seems reasonable to martial artists like you and I, because the public perception, and we're not talking, I'm not talking about the public perception of, of, you know, a 35 year old man that loves MMA or is at least aware of it. Right. A 70 year old woman, a 60 year old, you know, 60 year old men and women that maybe aren't as familiar with the sport may just think it's a, you know, a couple of bikers beating the shit out of each other. Yeah. And you find that there is better reception because you've done these sort of sessions similar to going to the, you know, to the, the nurses and the, and the or paramedics and, and police, you've done these with uh, high school, like women's, yes. uh, women's sports teams and, and men's sports teams in the high schools. Do you find that, you know, there's more reception with them either because they're already in a sports team based capacity and they might understand that a little bit more or just that, you know, they are thinking a little more progressively. There obviously is, you know, old dinosaurs who have very, you know, old ways of thinking that might not be a, as, as positive and as, you know, progressive that they, that they could be. Um, and do you find that there's better reception there so that, you know, you're developing the, the next generation of positive people in the world and, and they get it and they understand that, you know, the mechanics of it and why it's important. Yeah, the working working with the high schools is one of my – I love it and I hate it at the same time because high school kids are a pain in the ass. They're – you know, I, I teach I teach at a gym where everybody there – you know, everybody there pays to be there. Everybody is 
really excited to be getting good coaching and they're very respectful people. Not, not, not just because they're paying to be there, but because you're in a martial art situation, right? And there's kind of that sense, like, I'm going to be respectful because I know a lot of people around me could kick the shit out of me right now. Sure, yes. and, and you just get used to that level of communication. And not just with me and students, but between students and each other yeah, as well. And high school kids are just dumb. They're just, they're just dumb people. They don't get it. They'll say dumb things to me. They'll do th dumb things to each other. Yeah. And there's an opportunity there for me to, to be a very different type of voice than most of these kids here in their in their day-to-day -day life, uh, especially in Oakville and Burlington, very upper-class, uh, relatively upper-class uh, communities. You know, I, I teach at Oakville Trafalgar, yeah. which is surrounded by $10 million homes. Like, these kids are, 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 are extremely insulated. Yeah. And so I have the opportunity to come in as a fighter, looking like a fighter, uh, with some real life experience and actually able to talk to these kids about what violence looks like, about why it happens. Um, and it's, it's always funny to see how the class shifts when I walk in looking the way I do, uh, you know, I've got tattoos, broken ears. Yeah. And then over the course of the next hour, listening to me talk, uh, realizing that, that, that I'm a, I'm a compassionate teacher. That's that I, that I genuinely want people to love this and, and understand it. And, and watching the kids try to line those two ideas up uh, with how to interpret me, right? Like, like this guy looks like he might have just murdered somebody, but then he's so patient. And I love, I love that part of it because you can show that somebody that's attracted to violence isn't necessarily a bad person. Yeah. Um, and that's a super important idea. Uh, Lucas gave me a, um, a frame painting for Christmas uh, last year, a frame picture of a, 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 of a sheepdog. Uh, guarding a, a herd of sheep, and he said, "There's, there's two, there's two types of uh, uh, of, of animals that, that that are violent. So you have a wolf. A wolf will go and and when he sees something that's vulnerable, he will attack it and he will eat it and he will prey on it. And then you have uh, a sheepdog that uses the same level of strength and, and violence to protect that that same vulnerable uh, uh, sheep herd, right? So you can make the choice to be a, a wolf." or a, a sheepdog, but the, the violence itself, being comfortable with violence isn't good or bad, it's just a thing. What you do with it is what, is what makes it different. Pausing for intermission, pausing for intermission. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see that work. Yeah, okay, good. All right, awesome. And so, yeah, we were talking about this, this whole paradigm of, of you know, knowing when to use that. And I, I find that that's a big deal because it, it crosses this, you know, notion of you have information and data and knowledge. And again, none of it really matters per se, if you don't know what to do with it, or if you act nefariously with it. And so mm. I find that with work as well as that, you know, in the business world is acting as a change agent, you're generally wanting to bring about positive change. There's always those that are to your point that will like the wolf, they're just trying to consume for their own benefit. And you see that all the time in big corporations and, and the greed of, of money and, and in capitalism in general. And then there's those who, if they look at true capitalism, it's more looking at the, well, I'm going to try to get what I need, but protect others by investing more in what's going to benefit the society overall. And so mm. I think that's a, you know, a very important point and an interesting piece to, to, you know, to consider. Um, you mentioned, you know, you mentioned a few books throughout the course of this, and I know you're an avid reader and, you know, what, what do you have on tap right now that, that you're reading and, and, you know, what are you, what are you looking to, to read over the summer just based on, you know, your interest and do you, the, the follow on question to that, 
do you do you, similar to whiskeys and drinks do you have moods where you're at certain times of the year you're reading certain things or do you just mm -hmm. kind of go over that's a very very interesting question that really that really is i uh i'll come remind me of that one because i like i like that 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 last one quite quite a lot so you know the this has been the pandemic has been interesting for for a lot of reasons um i, I do read a lot and a lot of my reading is is often geared towards something i think will be will be will be useful um or that i that I, just that i find interesting but i'm busy all the time and so i tend to err more towards things that i think will be useful which yeah. is which is which is great with this pandemic i've had the opportunity to say fuck that I'm going to read wherever my, whatever my interest uh, uh, takes me. Yep. And what I ended up doing, this, sound, this, this, sounds, this sounds really geeky, and, and, it, and it is in a lot of ways, but I do, I, I study literature and, literature and history in university. I have a, a, a double major in, in, in both. And so this is, this is up my alley. Yeah. I don't generally even like telling people about this because it sounds so nerdy, but I, I, I never got into Shakespeare's historical plays. Right. He, he wrote, you know, everybody, the, the ones that we all know, Hamlet, Macbeth, uh, et cetera, Othello. Um, and then he wrote his Roman plays, which I've always been a big fan of. But then his English history plays, the Henriette, uh, you know, uh, uh, Henry II, uh, uh, Richard III, Henry V. Uh, you know, they're, they're uh, it all just, everybody's named uh, uh, Edward, Henry, uh, Margaret, and Anne. Every single person in those, that, and so I just never got into it. So I made the decision to, 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 to really deeply study the history around these plays and then, and then read the plays themselves with that, with that his, historical uh, context. And I'm, I'm absolutely, I'm having, I'm, I'm loving it. I'm loving it. Richard III is one of my, uh, just, it's, it's, it's tickling me pink. In a, in a, in a, a, a more specific sense, what I'm reading right now that is just, uh, I'm so excited about it. It's a book called The, the Influence of Sea Power on history and it it seems like a really specific book like a, like a naval history book and in a lot of ways it, it it is but it draws so many broader correlations to how a, an economy is built based around its ability to control sea lanes and when you start to understand how important this is you you understand why putin invaded the crimea uh two years ago he absolutely had to he absolutely had to, you know, and there's things I don't like about Putin, but when you're talking about the reality of ge geopolitics, Russia does not have deep water ports that are available to them year round. So they yeah. needed the Crimea. And this book, it was written in the, in the late 1800s, but it, it genuinely shaped the 20th century uh, history. It was so important that every Japanese naval commander had a copy of this book on their bridge at every point in time throughout the entire 20th century. <clears throat> and, 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 and when you start to when you start to read the history, you understand what Japan was doing when they, when they're using this book as the the basis. They say, okay, we need to we need to control uh, the sea lanes. We need to control the South China Sea. We need to control the the Pacific sea lanes so that we can become a world power. And they're and they're absolutely they're absolutely uh, uh, correct. And then in a in a in a in a philosophical sense, yeah. the book talks about comparing the French Navy to the English Navy as an example. And one attacks from the windward side habitually and the other attacks from the leeward side. And that's, you know, just naval gobbledygook. gobbledygook. But what, what it basically means is that one army always, always, always attacked. The English always set it up so they had the wind at their back and they were moving into attack. And the French, which is, which is you know, my 
personality very much, but the French would say, we're going to stay back and we're going to look at what they do. We're not going to commit ourselves. And once they get to a certain point, we are going to attack opportunities that arise because they are being overly exposed and reckless. Both of them, what you're, what you're, what you have there is the, the fundamental strategy that exists when you approach a fight or a jujitsu match or business. It, it, it dictates your fundamental strategy of, of approach. Are you going to be proactive? Are you going to, uh, 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 you know, try to force the hand of destiny or are you going to be reactive? Are you going to sit back and think and be contemplative? And there are, there are some very real pros and cons uh, with, with both. But as I was, as I was reading the book, I, I was, I, I, I was like, it was, it was talking about jujitsu to me, right? Yeah. It was talking about the idea of whether you play a more passive game and sit back and let your opponent commit or whether you dive in and look for, look for submissions. That's so interesting because I can picture historically, <laughs> you know, historically the English did trounce, uh, France, trounce France on the sea. It's why Napoleon was never able to, uh, to win. Uh, because uh, that war was essentially unwinnable for him once once uh, Nelson uh, uh, destroyed the ships at, at, at Trafalgar. So I always favor, I always favor the attack-oriented uh, mind frame. Yeah, and it's that progression continuously forward, right? Because if you move back and you get trapped, and yeah, to your point, there's poses. You move back, you're on, you're, you're, on your, you're on your heel. You're immediately reactive. You're immediately reactive. Yeah, you have you have limited options once you get into that state, right? So it presents that. So, that, so that's for me, for me also it's it's allowing your opponent to dictate the options that you have, and and sometimes sometimes you know if if you're really cagey and really clever, you can go into a situation already understanding what those options are going to be. Yeah. But you're 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 removing your ability to be flexible when you when you do that. And I don't like that. That's this is no. this is deep personality stuff. And I, I was like, no, fuck that French way of fighting. That's <laughs> But it's true though, right? You, you want to be adaptive. You want to be able to move on stuff. And if you, if you are on your heels, yeah, you're, you're in a problematic situation. I find it very interesting because it's along the lines of system thinking, right? And it's this whole notion of, and I find there's not a lot of people out there that think from that system perspective. They get caught deep into whatever it is they're doing, whether it's for good or for bad. Um, but it, it's, it's taking that step back and looking at the system overall to do mm. that. Just as you said, there's, there's multiple options, and while one may favor another and one has had better results, there are pluses that are, are benefits of, say, using a reactive situation. It may be in this particular case, you may want to use it for these reasons, but for majority of the time, you want to be somebody who is on their toes and, and moving forward. And so yes. yeah. that, that whole system level view is not is not considered, and, and it is helpful. And you know, you're talking about the studying of history and these pieces. I'm going to, I'm going to get that book because um, I've been reading Sapiens lately. I've finally gotten to it after, you know, five or six years. And what, a, what an interesting book. Like head floating. I have to take it day by day. I can only read a bit. And then to your point of reflection earlier, I have to go away for a while and then just be like, holy shit, what did I just read? Like, yeah, you know, you know, my, my, the, the thing that I liked, I, I liked, I really, really liked 40% of that book. It deteriorated for me when he started getting into some of the speculative stuff. Yeah. Uh, in the yeah. Second half. But when he was talking about the, the cognitive revolution, yeah. I, I, I was, I, I did the same thing. I actually had to close the book a couple of times and be like, okay, I gotta, I gotta think about this. Mm-hmm. And he talked about, my favorite part of the entire book was he said, the, the, the greatest strength that human beings have is the ability to share a collective imagined idea that yes. does not exist in reality. 
yes. and uses a few different examples. And he talks, he said, marriage, for example, yep. does not exist in reality, but it's a shared imaginative thing that all of human beings agree on. And so it's a thing. And then he used the Peugeot, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll use Ford because that's a little bit e easier. They use the Ford Motor Company as an example. He said, if you destroyed every Ford car on the road, all of them blown, blown up, you destroy every warehouse and you fire every, every employee and replace them with somebody new, Ford still exists. Yes. Right? Even, so what is, what is Ford? What is Ford? If it's not the cars, it's not the people, it's not the buildings, what is it? Yeah. And it's this, it's this, 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 this uh, uh, imagined uh, 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 shared idea. Yeah, yeah that, this, this is off topic, but, but this, 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 this strikes to the heart of, of, of some of the things that, that we're talking about. I was watching a really fascinating discussion about the, the science of, of alpha males. And it was, it was uh, a TED talk, and then, I, and then I followed up because it really shifted my perspective. But it was done by the guy that actually coined the term alpha male. He said, alpha male is not a good way to look at human society. Human beings do not have alpha males the way a, a troop of baboons do. It just, it's, and that's not to suggest that there aren't, you know, habitually dominant people that, 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 that kind of dominate most social situations. But we do not live in small groups of 200 that are essentially self-contained. It's way too interconnected to, to, to think that way. Yes. But you can draw some really interesting correlations, I think. And one of the things that I thought was, was so cool about this, they looked at empathetic behavior in chimpanzees. And they define empathetic behavior as, as honestly, what we would think of it as. Putting your, arm, putting your arm around somebody. And when the chimps console each other, it's really human. It's really human. They hug, they pet each other, they'll kiss foreheads, they'll hold hands. And they said 70 to 80% of, of, of that type of conciliatory behavior, that empathetic behavior comes from female chimps. Mm, One yeah. exception. They said the alpha male is by far the most conciliatory animal in that entire troop. Um, he, he displays by far the most amount of empathetic conciliatory uh, uh, behavior. And my, my sense is that Monkeys or baboons or chimps are a step behind us, but that is the beginning of a shared uh, cognitive uh, 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 imagination where you can, you have somebody that is pulling people in and keeping them connected to his vision or its vision of how, of how this is supposed to run. And that, and, and, it, and, it, and it, again, it boggled my mind because it looks like the first step towards that, that kind of cognitive revolution and the ability to share it's the whole essence of like everything is essentially a story that's been made up conjured from an idea since the beginning of time which is you know it, it is and that's how business works as well everything everything in business is, is one individual's opinion that has grown favoritism amongst a group and has then scaled and, and has now continued and it's influenced by a number of different mechanics but that that's essentially what it is right so you know, like, it's one of the other books that I, that I tried to read, tried to read, did not get very far into it was uh, the actual full Adam Smith Wealth of Nations. And it, <laughs> it, it's a thousand pages and it is not light. Like I've read, I've read excerpts of it and I've, I really like, he was, um, Adam Smith was best friends. I've got a tattoo of uh, uh, some Edward Gibbons writings. Yeah. Best friends. Um, you know, they had David Hume, who is, who's arguably the greatest English 
greatest philosopher writing and, and working in English of all time. Yeah. They were best friends. They got together and drank uh, and we chat about ideas. Super, super cool. But, but going back and, and trying to, to uh, understand what they, what they were talking about has been, has been really fascinating. But one of the things that I've read as a, as a, as a deep criticism of Adam Smith, and this, this, this just comes back to some of the business ideas we've been talking about. He acted as if he said, everybody is going to behave perfectly rationally. Mm. Every person is going to behave rationally and they're going to behave in their own best interests. And that's, and that's why this free market capitalism works so well. Yeah. But the truth is, 200 years later, I don't know if anybody acts in their own best interests. I don't know if, 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 the, if, if even the majority of the decisions that we make are, are rational, well-thought-out decisions with the intent of being in our own best interests. Why would somebody smoke? Why would somebody, why would somebody smoke cigarettes? If, that's, if, if, if everybody behaves rationally in their own best interest in an economical way, you, cannot, you can't explain it. Um, so there's, 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 there's problems with it, but I'm, I'm having fun trying to... Maybe this is a good segue to the whiskey conversation now. <laughs> no, you know I'm not going to be upset about, uh, about a whiskey chat. <laughs> so, so, so the... the keeping on the books and, you know, and, and moods it like, is it like, cause obviously oh, I'm glad you came back to that. I'm glad you came back to that. The bourbon whiskey, I know you're a bourbon whiskey guy. And so it, you know, it's, it, you know, obviously the flavors of that like beer can change based on the mood and what you're doing, yep. you know, time of year and stuff like that. And, and maybe the occasion, uh, have you found that that's similar with books and um, you know, and what would you recommend to somebody right now? Uh, if you were to give like a one or two books to read, like what would you recommend? Okay, there's big questions there. So I'll say in a broad sense, what I drink is definitely usually connected to mood and atmosphere. Uh, you know, so I, I, I definitely tend to drink beer in the sunshine. Uh, you know, I like, uh, I like wine if I'm sharing it with somebody. Uh, whiskey is, is, Whiskey, even subdivision. I, I, I drink, I drink scotch when I'm feeling good. I drink bourbon uh, when anytime really. I actually really like bourbon. I drink Irish whiskey when I'm sad, and I don't know why that is, but it always seems to to end up that way. Uh, actually, I met a, I met a bartender in Ireland that, that that hated whiskey, and I said, well. well why is there so much of an Ireland? He said, because we're sad. We hate ourselves. And this is <laughs> in terms of books, that's a mood. The mood. That's hard to say. I definitely go through phases of, of fiction versus nonfiction. Mm-hmm. I'll say that there, there are some times where I've tried to pick up a novel and I am just not in the right mind frame for make believe. And, and it's, and I just, I, I will be able to tell within five pages and say, nope, okay, I need to go, I need to go back to Adam Smith. I need something, I need something a little bit uh, more cerebral. Yeah. And then other times I'll read the same sentence 10 times. I'm like, this just isn't, this just isn't getting in there. You know, I'm going to go read a Tom Clancy novel or I'm going to, you know, like just like just something yeah. that's light yeah. and good. And I'm not, I'm not, I'm not shitting on Tom Clancy. I'm not, but like, a, like we go read a light fiction book. Yeah, it's just, it's just a different, you know, again, it's your mood, right? Or you're feeling at a time and, and yeah, I'll, I'll get that too. Or I'll get, my wife always recommends I, I read 60 to 80 pages and she can read a book in like a day, which will take me a month to read. And yeah. they get 60 to 80 pages in 
And if you still don't like it, then yeah, move on because it's yep. not like, the story's gotten into it enough. That is good advice. That is, that is good advice. And, and my, I find that, that, that people that read a lot uh, have that attitude more often where they say, you know, if you've given it a chance, and you're 60, 80 pages in and you don't like it, don't torture yourself for another 400 pages. Exactly. If you're not into it, just shut yeah. it and, and go and, and move on. Where sometimes people that, that, that don't make reading a part of their, their day-to-day uh, entertainment yeah. I think we'll, we'll like say, nope, I'm going to, I'm going, I started this book and God damn it, I'm going to finish it. You're like, you're not climbing Mount Kilimanjaro. I mean, Jesus Christ, like it's, it's just a book, you know, it's fine to put it down like that's. And, and I think that's an interesting point of like including it in, in your daily routine, right? Because you hear a lot about that. Like I love Bill Gates for that because he's constantly reading and, and there's a, obviously a, a plethora of others that do, but it's this notion of, you know, you're, you're adding it to your routine and I, and it can be difficult and, it, and it's not like you, you know, you know, you shun yourself or, or hate on yourself if you don't get to it that day. But I do think it's important, like anything that, you know, back to the discipline that you do include it because those who tend to be better thinkers and, and, and those that are wanting to do, um, to do really well and, and to be, you know, smart about how they go about their day, smart about how they, go about their work is they're not just trying to be busy for busy. They're trying to evolve and learn and grow. And yeah, and you do need that, right? And you do need fiction and nonfiction. Like I, I, I delved between both of them as well and starting to get into more nonfiction. Cause I felt like I read or sorry, more into fiction. Cause I read nonfiction for so long. I'm like, you know what? I can't take another fucking leadership book or. Yeah. And, you know, so I've, I've genuinely learned as much about, about leadership uh, uh, from, from reading, uh, uh, you know, from good to great, uh, yeah. for example, uh, I, 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 you know what, I'm not even going to say as much. I've learned more right. reading the, a biography of Julius Caesar or reading a novel about, uh, there's a great novel by Stephen Pressfield. Well, well that, this, this, this is a good recommendation. I'll give you two, you know what, I'll tell you that that's a, that's a great, that's a great segue. I will give you two novels that yeah. I think teach you something about, about leadership. Uh, uh, in, a, in a very genuine sense. The first is called Gates of Fire, and it's by Stephen Pressfield. And Stephen Pressfield is the same guy that wrote uh, The Legend of Bagger Vance, um, oh, yeah. which he made into a movie. Uh, he also wrote um, a business book. I can't remember what it's called. Um, something with art in the title. But anyways, the, the, oh, the art, what is it? The, the Art of the Steel, maybe? Anyways, it doesn't, doesn't matter. But, but it's Gates of Fire is about is about the Battle of Thermopylae when uh, when Xerxes and the Persians invaded. The same thing that Three Hundred is about, but instead of being this this um, you know abstract uh, uh, thing, Three Hundred gets shit on a lot. It was based on a graphic novel that was not meant to be historically accurate. It was meant to be an artistic representation of the Greeks' perception of yeah. what was happening, which is not what was happening, right? So people get people got all butthurt about that. This book looks at Leonidas and why he makes the decision that he does and how in the days leading up to the inevitable uh, foregone conclusion of these men's death, how he leads them and how he, uh, and, and it's, it's, it's wonderful. It's a wonderful book. It's, it's a required reading uh, in the Marine Corps officer school. Oh, really? Um, That's yeah. Cool. The second one, and I recommend this book more than any other book I think I've ever read. I read it for the first time when I was 12, 
and I've read it. I've read it every four or five years uh, since. And it's a science fiction book called Ender's Game. And they made a movie about it, but do not watch the movie. Or if you do, forget that the movie exists. Um, but the premise of the book is that there has been two invasions of Earth from an alien race. And we barely survived. We did survive. We, we you know, had a stalemate and beat them once. But it's really scary if they come again. And so they're trying to train the next generation of military leader for this future invasion. And so the whole book takes place in a battle school for kids that are identified as being gifted uh, on earth. And so they're five or six years old, but they're hyper geniuses. And that book taught me more about leadership and managing people and uh, 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 maintaining a clarity of vision through difficult logistic realities of leadership. That, 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 that's, I know that's a, I know that's a fairly broad idea to talk about with, with a, a science fiction novel, but it really did teach me those lessons. And it's funny, I read the book when I was 12 and really identified with the kids. I really identified with what the kids were, were, were doing. And then I read it now as an adult and I identify more with the, the, the structure of military leaders around it that are trying to influence these kids. And it's just, it's, uh, I, I don't think I've gotten more from a fiction book in my life than I have from it, from Ender's Game. Um, it's by Orson Scott Card, wonderful book. And then if you if you end up liking it, there's there's like six other books in the series. It gets it expands into a broader world that is that is none of the other books are as good, but they're they're good. Very cool. I, I I've read the Ender's Game and and I've had the audio book and yeah, I love it. It was. It was recommended to me many years ago, and I, and I love it. I, I think I might have to go back to it as well, because there was, it's a lot to take in, everything just from, to your point, influence to the point of, you know, the, the politics inside of it, and, and everyone has, the, there's obviously different games, if you will, that each of the, the military personnel are playing, the, the balance yeah. power, the balances between the students, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's quite. I, I loved it also, that book actually also got me uh, my first step into, into studying philosophy, because Ender's, Ender's brother and sister uh, 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 start up uh, these, these alter egos on the internet as a way to influence the politics when they're, because they're super geniuses too. Mm-hmm. And they name themselves uh, Demosthenes and Locke. Uh, and, and they're both meant to represent the, the philosophies of the, of the, the, the men that they're, that they're representing. And Demosthenes in particular uh, was a man that I wasn't ultimately all that familiar with. And I, I actually have a tattoo on my on my uh, arm of of uh, this is uh, Philip of Macedon. Oh and Philip yeah. Philip of Macedon was the father of Alexander the Great, and yeah. Demosthenes was his greatest enemy. Was his greatest enemy. He would he 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 wrote speeches about uh, uh, the the egregious abuse of of, of democracy, the egregious mm-hmm. abuse of, of of political freedoms uh, across Greece at the hands of this despot, uh, Philip of Macedon. Um, and it's a, it, 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 it started me along that path because I wanted to understand the, the reference. Um, and, and it's, and it's interesting to have ended up with, with Philip uh, of, of Macedon on my arm. Tattoo on you now. Um, so, yeah, so, it's, uh, interesting stuff. So with these two leadership books, so those are great. And, and, uh, and for those listening, it'll go in the show notes and stuff like that. But, you know, with leadership, have you ever considered going into, and maybe you do this now, like one-on-one or with small units, um, coaching like business professionals, like, like, so obviously you do first responders from a, a, a jujitsu and martial arts practice, but, 
Um, what about from like a leadership and coaching perspective? Um, do you, have you looked at um, doing that with white, with white collar or, or you know, business mm. professionals, right? The white collar is maybe not a great term, but it's. No, I know, I know, I know what you mean. Um, I, I hadn't actually considered that. I, I don't, I don't even know how I would go about uh, getting involved, but I do, I, you know, I would see some value in that. I had, um, my dad, my dad is one of the smartest men I've, 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 I've ever met in my life, but he's got a very practical mind, a very, very practical mind. And I've, I've got, like I said, in some ways, uh, a, a more imaginative mind. And, and there's a couple of times that he came to me when he was studying for his, uh, his MBA, they gave him a couple of things to read that were not business books. Right. One was The Prince by Machiavelli, which is probably fairly obvious, but the other was The, uh, the Iliad uh, by, by Homer. Yeah. And he, he said, you know, sport, I, I just, I can't, I can't wrap my head around this. I don't get it. I don't, I, I don't even understand why this is on the list. And I said, well, dad, if you're, stu if you're studying managerial science, look at the, look at the relationship between Agamemnon and Achilles, right? You have your absolute best employee uh, uh, that you feel is getting a little too big for their britches. So you take something from them as a way to teach them a lesson. And then they go and sit and refuse to work for three weeks. So was that good leadership? Was that, were you being an effective, an effective leader in that situation? Or were you being a self-centered, uh, a power hungry leader? And it's, it's, that's an important, and that's just, that's just the prime example in the Iliad of, of, of these, of this, this, this correlation between the, the, uh, the classics and what I think can be, can be genuine lessons in, in, in leadership. Um, and I, I so well, maybe it's something you should consider, right? Because it is, it is effective. It is a very, you know, and, and obviously the, those who are in positions of power, like executive level positions, they are, you know, those individuals that kind of need a, a stark look at things and, and that perspective. Um, like similar to like, like I'll use Jocko Willing because he's very popular these days and he's, he's had some great success coming out of the Navy SEALs as a, as a leader in that, in that particular space. And having moved into it, he runs a similar sort of uh, leadership coaching uh, function now where that's what he does, right? Like, and obviously he has a number of different things he does in conjunction with that. But one of his prime businesses that he runs is a coaching consulting businesses with leaders to teach better leadership practices based on obviously his, his experience as a, as a Navy SEAL uh, individual as well as mm. a Navy SEAL leader. Yeah, he's, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of his uh, he, he, he really hits the right combination of meathead and thoughtfulness for me. Uh, you know, like that's cause yeah, I like that combo. Cause it, it's, it's, it is, man. It's, it's just, it, it is. It's, it's meathead. Like I, mean, I try to tow, uh, as, as well. I think he does it a little bit better than, than I do, but I love it. You know, he's so, he comes across as so real and so genuine, uh, and so true to his own beliefs. Yeah. That, that even when he's saying things that I don't necessarily agree with, right. I know that it comes from a place of total sincerity. Uh, and that, that, that I, I like that. I like listening to people like that. Yeah, again, even if I disagree, yeah. um, you know, I, I will give my time to, to listen to somebody that, 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 that is that sincere. Yeah. It's, it's the authenticity, right. Which is, is often, you know, missing in a lot of capacities. Right. So I, I do like it a lot and I, I find I come and go with him, but I, like I have his book, Extreme Ownership. It actually, that book has become a, a, a staple with a lot of executives I know because I had mentioned it at a client one time. And, well, we have, yeah, like I have it. 
these other 10 VPs have it, you know, so you can see that these sort yeah. of things are you know, my, concern, my concern when I see something become that ubiquitous is that is that it loses its it loses its punch, right? If every VP has to has to read it, then they probably aren't really absorbing it and reading it. Where I find value in that type of book is where you stumble across it. Yes. You stumble across it and say, and, and you kind of are, are, are woken up to the idea of genuine accountability yeah. as a leader, genuine accountability and, and, and approaching, approaching leadership where, where you are behaving as if you're going to be held accountable, right? From, from the, from the first moment, not just the reality of that, yeah. um, but throughout the entire uh, uh, leadership process. Yeah. And man, do I like that idea? You know, there's, there's the, with those types of books, I don't like self-help books. I do not like self-help books. And a lot of business books toe that line between yeah. something that I think is a, is a, um, is, is a genuine idea and, and something that's a self-help book. And, and where, I, where I find that I have the biggest problem is that they will take one good idea right. and beat the shit out of it for 300 pages. Um, you know, and it's like that I didn't need, I could have I absorbed this in 40 pages instead of 300. Um, but I really, really do like that one idea from, from, from Jocko. I, there's more to it than that, but that, that accountability. It is. Yes. That's a good one. That's, that's a, you know, if I was going to recommend a, a traditional like business style self-help book, that might be that one. And uh, you know, the, the other one is um, Dale Carnegie, the classic, how to win friends and influence people. Yes. But it's the, it's, it's the simplest, just best advice I've, I've ever read. And when I, when I think about, when I think about uh, business advice in terms of being successful in business, that book has done more for me than anything else I've, I've, I've read. In, like where, where its intention is to make you more successful. Yes. And so where, where do you see things going now? Like you know, obviously the, the gym is not open. Um, the desire is to, to get it open as quickly as possible. It's obviously a very stressful time. Um, where do you see things going? You know, do you, you, you obviously want to get the place opened up again. There'll be some measures, but you know, how do you see, I guess, you know, do you, do you see it opening soon in, in, a, in a short answer? And then where do you see martial arts going? Because obviously there's going to be some catch up to play and it's obviously a challenge, you know, given the situation. Yeah, there's in terms of opening up, um, I'm, I'm really hopeful that it's soon. I'm really, really hopeful that it's soon. I, I've been in touch with our provincial sport organization uh, and the city of Oakville's uh, public health unit. Yeah. And, and, and basically some cities are saying it's okay and some are not. Uh, Oakville, Oakville is saying that they are following the letter of the mandate of the province. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if you saw the Oakville was the, the city that gave the, the thousand dollar fine to the family in the park. When they're rollerblading through, they are litigious. They will. We've had five bylaw officers stop by when somebody's there to clean up or to check on the place. That we get, we get people calling when our cars are there. Yeah. So they are litigious. So my sense is we will probably be waiting until uh, until uh, phase three, uh, and when that happens, I don't know. In terms of what martial arts look like moving forward. I don't know. I, you know, it's, there's the, the, there does not seem to be a consensus amongst experts about, about a point in time in the future where it will be totally okay to go in and, and roll around with perfect strangers and breathe all over them like that. And nobody has said 
that's ever going to be okay again. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know what that looks like. My, my, my hope is that once measures are in place and, and the comfort level of the, the general public is at, is at a point that say, okay, we know, we know how this works. We know where this is, where we're vulnerable and where we're not. These guys are doing this right. I'm hoping that, that, that things get back to normalcy, but if we were, if we are back to something like normalcy before the end of this calendar year, I would be delighted. Like if we, if we can have classes where there's people coming in and rolling, yeah. I would tickle pink. That would be, that's, that would be amazing. Um, and that's kind of what, and that's a longer, that's a longer timeline than I'm kind of hoping for, but that keeps me, keeps me in the yeah, right mind. That, that's helping keep you balanced too, right? Cause it is, it is a day by day. It is volatile. And, you know, we, we talked about this earlier where everyone is impacted, you know, in some form or another and, you know, to, to not go into too much of a COVID conversation, but it is to, to help with the stress and anxiety as an individual and as, as a unit, then yeah, you, you kind of have to have, you expect this so that it's a reasonable date, but it's not, it's something that you hope for sooner than later. Exactly. So, so, you know, how, how can people find you? Like, you know, obviously you guys have a website and we can put that up, but if, if yep. people are wanting to get in touch with you, um, do you, are you becoming more active on social media or? I've been, know? yeah, I've been, um, you know, since we opened up the, uh, the shows and started running the shows, I've been a little bit more present on social media. It's all geared, all of my social media is geared towards gym stuff, mostly. Gym yeah. stuff, and, I, and I, I play the bagpipes as well, so that started to show up a little bit uh, on, there, on there, too. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, so my, my Instagram is Snoop Roar, uh, like Snoop Dogg, but with yeah. Snoop Roar. Um, I'm on Facebook. Uh, the, gym has, uh, the gym has an Instagram, Parabellum MMA. Um, you'll follow us. There's lots of, lots of stuff going on. Now you mentioned the shows and, and we didn't get a chance to get into it and maybe we'll have to have a, another conversation. This one's been awesome. So I, I think we definitely, you know, we're, yeah. we're going to need to have a few of these at some point, but you know, are those shows available for people to watch? Cause that would, you know, just to bring about interest or, you know, yeah, there, there's actually, we've got our last show is on YouTube. I, I had it streamed with a pretty high quality company uh, and we uploaded it for free. So it's Parabellum Quintet uh, three. Um, and it's got some of the, some of the, 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 certainly the, the best grapplers, uh, uh, in Canada. Um, you know, if not, uh, if not the world, we had, uh, you know, TriStar, uh, Detroit Jiu-Jitsu, Cicero Costa, um, and 10th Planet of Montreal. And these guys genuinely have world champions, guys that are being talked about as being one of the greatest grapplers on earth, guys like, uh. Uh, you know, on, on TriStar, we had uh, Ethan and uh, uh, on Oliver, uh, on uh, Cicero Costa, we had guys uh, just, just unreal. Un the entire team uh, was, was uh, Fosto is, is, is a killer. He was a uh, silver medalist at the, the Worlds, I think. Uh, just really, it's, it's, it's great grappling. It's great grappling. Check it out. Cool. All right. I, I'm going to add that to it as well. And then you have an email um, that people can get in touch with you as well. I, I think. Yeah, it's, it's on the, it's on the website. It's on the website. Okay. Coach at coach at Parabellum. All right. That's a wrap everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in and listening to Rory and I have a, a great conversation across a vast amount of topics. Uh, I really appreciate your time uh, listening to the ways of working podcast. If you haven't had a chance to check out the other episodes that I have published, please do so. Uh, I do greatly appreciate your time. And if you do have feedback, please reach out. Thanks so much and enjoy your week.